Well, good morning, Mosaic. My name is Phil, and I have uh, just the great privilege of uh, being called one of your pastors here. Uh, I am usually behind the scenes. I've got a weird title, like executive pastor, but every now and then they let me preach. And so today is, uh, is one of those days, and we're going to get right into it. Uh, you know, I had the privilege of growing up in an awesome Christian home. Uh, we took the Bible seriously. Uh, I learned at an early age to love the church. In fact, my dad was the lead pastor of our church. <clears throat> he served as a pastor for over 50 years. And I, and I have a very distinct memory of growing up one particular Christmas, uh, maybe around age six or seven. Um, it was Christmas morning, and we had opened up all of our gifts, and my dad brought out one more gift for each of us, um, everyone, in, everyone in my family, and, which was kind of weird. We'd already finished with all the gifts, and uh, we unwrapped it, and it was a copy of the Bible. And I thought that was really strange because, like, we already had a ton of Bibles in the house. Like, I didn't know what we needed another five Bibles in our house for. But, but it was a copy of the Bible. And this one was, was just a little bit different than the other ones that we had. I distinctly remember it. It was, it was a hardback, navy blue Bible, and it had three silver letters on the front. It said N-I-V. What had happened was that my dad and the leaders of the church uh, where he was serving were in the process of transitioning our church from the old King James version of the Bible to the new international version. Uh, this was the 1980s, early 1980s, and the Bible translation discussion, we'll call it that, was heating up. Uh, now you think about this, um, this was a 200-year-old Baptist church, and they had been using the 400-year-old King James Bible like for their entire journey, right? And suddenly they were using this new thing called the NIV. I don't know if you've ever read the King James Version. Um, it's, uh, it sort of sounds like Shakespeare, which is, which is fun for a while, and it, it makes you feel really smart. Um, but at some point, you just kind of like want to be able to read the Bible and understand what the heck you're reading, right? So, and I'm not against the KJV. I just, just it's hard for me to understand sometimes. So the vast majority of the people in our church welcome the change, but a very small vocal minority were not so pleased, right? People left the church over it. My dad was called a liberal, a heretic. I mean, a few other things that you don't expect Baptists to say, right? Well, what had happened for those few people that were really upset? Well, they had made Bible translations a non-negotiable of the faith, right? A few years later, my dad made another crazy and wild move um, he had the church start singing songs, are you ready for this, that were not in the hymnal. I know it's crazy, I know it's crazy. People freaked out. Again, it was a small but vocal minority, uh, but they felt that we had a perfectly good hymn book and a very nice organ to play those hymns on, and we had no need for these, these new choruses, as they were called. Uh, again, now this, we're getting into the mid-80s. And uh, we were getting into what was called the worship wars, which is perhaps the, one of the saddest phrases ever invented in the history of the church. Soon churches were dividing over traditional versus contemporary worship. People were literally leaving churches because guitars and drums were being added to the service. Now, this is only like 20 or 30 years ago. Like, this is not that long ago. And, and this was a kind of a dark moment in our church history, right? Well, what had happened? We had elevated the hymn book, and I love hymns, I want to make that clear. We had elevated the hymn book to the same level as Scripture. 
which we probably could have predicted since it literally sat next to the Bible in like the pew rack holder, right? Like if, you, if your entire life, you're, you're sitting in a pew and there's a, a holder and you've got, you, you remember how it works if you guys grew up in that kind of a church? Two hymn books, one Bible in the middle, a spot for your communion cup, a spot for a pencil. That's how it works, right? <laughs> and if you're staring at this your whole life, like of course you're going to start to associate the hymn book with the Bible. So you go changing the hymn book and you start adding to it. It's like you're adding new books to the Bible. So this, you know, this happened. Um, and we had, what we had done again is we had taken hymns and the hymn book and we had made it a matter of life and death. We'd made it a matter of eternal significance. In 1998, I married my wife, Amy, and we made the controversial decision to have dancing at our wedding. <laughs> One of the leaders in our very Baptist church suggested that it, it would be offensive to many who thought that dancing was of the devil. Mass hysteria and angry mobs were predicted. But in the end, everybody had a really good time. And this may surprise you, but doing the hokey pokey in the electric slide caused no one to fall into sin and debauchery, not a single person. <laughs> see, see, what I learned is that in growing up in, in this kind of a church, and by the way, I had a great experience in my church. We just had a few funky things, right? Like, I love the church I grew up in. We just had a few weird things like that. But growing up in a church like that, what I realized is that oftentimes we spend the most time arguing over the least important things, Right? Well, in my college and graduate school years, I took a lot of classes on church history. It was kind of a, a fun thing for me. And, and I learned about all sorts of things that the church has, you know, kind of fought over for the last couple thousand years. And some of them have literally been going on for a couple thousand years. Do you know that we've spent most of our church history, 2,000 years, arguing over the tiniest nuances in the details related to God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility in our faith journey? Like, we've spilled a lot of ink over that issue, right? You know, we've been talking for nearly 2,000 years about what age is right to baptize somebody and how much water should be involved. Like, that has, seems to have been one of the most important things in our, in our discussion over a couple thousand years. And they are important conversations, very important conversations. But what does it say that we've been having them for nearly 2,000 years amongst people that are, are really and truly loving Jesus? right? Why do we do this? Why in the church world do we spend a lot of time arguing over things that while they are important, not all of them have eternal significance? And I believe that it often comes down to elevating issues beyond their level of importance. And then what we do is we often fall, fail to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in the midst of our disagreements. So, can we agree that if you take every belief that you hold about matters of faith, and if you line them all up next to each other, that they are not all equally important? Like, my deeply held conviction that baptism should happen after you are old enough to express faith in Christ is actually not as important as my firmly held belief that Jesus rose from the dead. Like, those are in two different categories. They're not in the same category. See, if that's true, then what I want to do today is unpack three categories of belief and give some definition to them and then talk about what happens in community when we get those categories confused. So we're going to create a vocabulary for expressing belief 
within community. All right, now we're going to call the first category matters of eternity. And that's the circle that you're going to see in the middle of this target here, matters of eternity. The things that go into this category of belief are things that are absolutely required if you are going to be considered a Christ follower. Here we're going to find things like, is Jesus God? Is the Bible true? Is the Holy Spirit real? Do we find our forgiveness and salvation in Jesus alone? See, this is really basic stuff that, for the most part, the vast majority of the church has agreed on for pretty much all of our history. This is early Apostles' Creed kind of stuff. And I'm calling this category matters of eternity because it's actually that serious. See, if, if you don't believe, for example, that salvation comes through Jesus alone, well, it's not that you just have like a little different perspective. You're actually on a different team. John 14, 6, uh, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. See, if we water down Jesus, who is so central to everything, well, you believe something, we just shouldn't, with a straight face, call it Christianity, right? And so that's why these are matters of eternity, because they actually affect how you spend eternity. And as a result, this category of belief ought to be very small. It ought to be very small. These are the absolute non-negotiables of the faith. These are matters of eternity. Now, right about now, some of you are thinking, well, shoot, I kind of want to see that list and make sure like I'm okay, right? So, so here's the deal. Don't do this right now, but later on, I don't want you to be distracted. Later on, go on the website and you can look for the word doctrine. It's going to be under, I think, visit. I think it's under visit. And you'll, you'll see our doctrine right here. And that list is intentionally brief. We don't include statements on every little thing that churches have ever discussed over the last 2,000 years. We don't include little statements on every tiny little argument and have a position on everything. This is, this is basic Apostles' Creed kind of stuff in our statement of faith. It's meant to be the absolute basics of the faith, and you can find that on our website later on. It's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Now let's move on to the next category of belief. The next category of belief gets quite a bit bigger. We're going to call it matters of studied conviction. If you've been a Christ follower for any length of time, you've probably been a part of more than one church. Mosaic is only 13 years old, so you know, the chances that you were at another church is pretty, pretty common. And you might have noticed that at different churches, right, good, solid, Bible-believing, Scripture-teaching churches, you're going to find some different kind of minor differences in belief. And oftentimes, those differences in belief will be held very strongly by that particular church. That, that belief may impact uh, the everyday life of that church or the worship of that church. For example, there are a group of churches that believe that church is supposed to happen on Saturday, not on Sunday. That's a, that's a studied conviction of theirs, that, that the Sabbath is supposed to happen on the seventh day of the week rather than the first day of the week. That's their conviction, and I can respect that, uh, even if I read Scripture differently. Side note, have you ever driven by Chick-fil-A on a Sunday and wished that it was founded by one of those groups, right? <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I always crave Chick-fil-A on Sunday. It has something to do with my depravity. Seriously, though, I'm going to spend eternity with lots of people who believe that church should happen on Saturday. 
because these are matters of studied conviction, not matters of eternity. Now, I may get to heaven and find out that I was wrong, and they were right. But either way, if we believe in Jesus, we'll be there together, right? So studied conviction, how does this work? You come to an issue, you go to Scripture, you study it, right? This is not rocket science. And you come to a particular conviction about an issue that is, I'm going to say, not an eternal matter. You are fully informed by Scripture, and yet another Christ follower, equally informed by Scripture, comes to a different conclusion and has a different studied conviction than you. And in certain cases, that's okay. Do you know that there's an entire series of books that recognizes this reality? It's called the Counterpoint Series. It's, it's actually really good. I've got a number of them. Um, it, it has titles like this, Four Views on the Book of Revelation, Four Views on the Historical Adam, Four Views on Miraculous Gifts, and there's like 20 books in this series. Well, why do those books even exist? Because we bring, we bring our finite minds to Scripture, and we Beg the Spirit of God to illuminate His Word before our eyes, and He does. But when we view Scripture, even through those illuminated eyes, the lens that we look through is always impacted by our personal reality, by our personality, and our own life experiences, and we can't even help it. And that's why we need the Christ-following community around us to tell us when we get a little screwy on a particular issue, right? We should never do theology all by ourselves. That's where cults come from. Some guy goes off on his own, pretty soon he's digging up like plates from under a tree, and we get a cult from it, okay? So convictions are those beliefs that we can potentially have different views on and still be Christ-following people because they don't impact eternity for us even though the issues are often very, very important. Now, I'll tell you, as a pastor, I wish that, that most of your convictions emerged from lots of study. But I also recognize that it's just not possible when you're juggling work and, and family and life and friendships, it's hard to be able to sit down and study every issue that you're going to have a conviction on. I get that. And so a lot of times your beliefs are not matters of studied conviction, but they're what I'll call borrowed conviction. It's not going to show up on the screen. What I mean by borrowed conviction is that, is that you, you look to a trusted faith leader in your life. It might be Renault or one of the other pastors here, and you say, you know, I don't have time to study the finer points of this particular issue, but, but I know that our pastoral team has done so, and I trust them. And so I'm going to borrow their conviction for now on this particular issue. And, and you know what? That is totally acceptable and, and very common. In fact, sometimes our pastoral team does that with each other. Like if there's an issue facing our culture or our church, it's not uncommon for us to assign a couple of guys out of you know, the 15 pastors that we have and say, all right, you guys go study this issue that's facing our church or our culture and you come back with your findings, and then we're going we're to talk about that together. And so studied conviction is good. Some amount of borrowed conviction is expected. But sometimes we hold convictions that are neither studied nor borrowed. They're just ignorant, right? See, whether it's studied or borrowed, it ought to ultimately come from Scripture. First Timothy, or 2 Timothy 2.16 uh, is pretty clear on this. All Scripture is breathed out by God 
and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man, and we can include in here, woman of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. If your convictions come from a vague idea of what you kind of believe in your heart, that, that's actually not a, a conviction at all. That's more like an opinion. Convictions, even when we disagree, should always emerge from Scripture as our starting point. So we started with the absolute matters of eternity. And that category was pretty small, not a whole lot of room for variation in there. Then we came to matters of studied conviction. And lots of our deeply and strongly held beliefs are going to fall into that category. It's probably going to be the biggest category, and it, it also has room for variation. And now we come to the third ring on the target here, and that's going to be matters of personal preference. Matters of personal preference. Now, these are the beliefs that you hold to, uh, but kind of loosely, like recognizing that there's probably a lot of freedom uh, for differences of opinion. It's usually going to be issues that are either not addressed in Scripture, directly or indirectly, or things that Scripture seems to kind of give us a lot of room on. It's things like, like worship styles. It's things like Bible translations. Parents, it's things like parenting methods, right? It's still based in Scripture, but it's, it's often impacted by the way that you need to apply Scripture in your particular journey, your particular life. And this is really the difference between the Bible commanding our actions and choices, which it does at times, versus the Bible informing our actions or choices. Let me just pick um, one of these examples of what a preference looks like, and I'm going to take musical worship styles as, a, as an example. As I mentioned earlier, worship styles within the church have been something that, you know, uh, for church history, it's something that we've had a lot of disagreements over, especially in the last 50 or 60 years. And, you know, it, it makes total sense to me because music is art, right? And art is a little bit subjective. It's kind of entirely a matter of taste. And so it makes sense to me that we would have had a lot of disagreements over this particular preference. There's truth in the statement that there's no accounting for taste, right? Some people will prefer that their worship sound like you've just flicked on Z88 every day, right? That's some people's preference. Others are gonna just love the hymns and the organs with maybe the occasional piano. Some will wish for, you know, a quiet, acoustic feel. Others want it loud and in your face. Some believe that every song we sing ought to be just dripping with deep, rich theology. Others see a need for songs that connect with our heart in a different way. And see, we're, we're all coming at this particular issue, right? Some only want new songs. Some only want old songs. And the interesting thing is that almost every one of us are convinced that our worship preferences are the best and most universally enjoyed, right? We all think we're right. We all think we're right. It's so funny to me. I'll, I'll be in you know, the lobby after a service, and someone will come up to me, and they'll be telling me how much they connected with a particular song. Like they just were really dialed in. They're like, man, that new song that Zach introduced, gosh, I'm really connected with that. And then someone else will come up like 10 minutes later, same song. I really don't like that new song. I'm not a big fan of it, right? Why is that? Because it's art, <laughs> and it's a little bit subjective, right? And so it's a preference. 
Certainly there are scriptural guidelines that, that ought to guide our worship, but they ought to create kind of a range for appropriate worship, but, but that range is really pretty wide. And this is a great example of an area where we as a church uh, can learn to live well with each other and respect each other's preferences for, for musical worship styles. Truthfully, this is not an issue here, but I'm using it as an example. So that's just one example of, of something in the preference category. And you'll notice that the circle narrows in this category, and that's because, honestly, there are not many things that should fall into it. You've got a small number of things that are, are non-negotiables of the faith, absolute matters of eternity. You've got a, a lot that are in that studied conviction category, and then you've got a, a small number that are falling into that personal preference category. Now, sometimes... Sometimes you're going to have an issue that actually exists in all three categories at the same time. Let me look at one example and trace this through uh, each category. I'm going to take the example of creation as an example and all the issues surrounding it. This is going to be fun. You ready? All right. So for our entire history as the church, we have, you know, 2,000 plus years we have said that in some sense, God created the earth. We find it all through Scripture, starting in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we've got like hundreds of other verses that, that allude to that same concept. And so, uh, the concept that the universe begins with God is so central to our faith that if you put aside that idea it really starts to look like a different faith altogether. If you believe that, that everything we see is a complete accident and that God is really just a, a human invention, well, well, you believe something, it's just not Christianity. And so that becomes a matter of eternity, that in some sense God is the creator and sustainer of the universe. And yet, good Bible-believing Christians have differed over how God created the earth for quite some time. Now, the most common view has been to look at the Genesis account and see that the world was created by God in six literal 24-hour periods with a day of rest at the end. Other Christ followers that have just as much respect for Scripture, just as much respect for God's Word, will look to the same passages of Scripture and see those individual days representing big spaces of time, maybe a thousand years, maybe a million years. Still others will point to the creation account in Genesis and say, look, it's, it's poetry. It was not meant to be science. It's poetry, and the point is that God did it. I know Christians that believe that God caused an event that scientists would label the Big Bang. I know Christians that believe that God, in some sense, pushed some giant play button on evolution. I know good Christians that vehemently believe in a young earth, and I know good Christians that vehemently believe in an old earth. And I believe vehemently that if our faith in Jesus is real, I will spend eternity with every one of them. Every one of them. Why? Because these are not matters of eternity. These are matters of studied conviction. There are a dozen other views that, that, that talk about plenty of, you know, books that we can read, and they all start with the premise that God did, in fact, do it. That God did it is an eternal matter. How God did it 
is a studied conviction. So where does personal preference come in here? Well, personal preference is going to help you decide how important you see this particular issue in your faith journey as compared to other matters of studied conviction. See, it's my personal preference that there are other more important issues to discuss than this one. It's my personal preference. It's totally fine for you to disagree with me on that. But I know for a fact that as soon as I mentioned that issue, like some of you were like, ah, where is this going to go? Do I have to cover my kids' ears? What's going to happen? Right? Some of you started getting worried. Some of you thought, shoot, are we going to have to leave this church? (laughs) Do they not take the Bible seriously? We absolutely take the Bible seriously. That's why we've been preaching through it for the last decade, and we're not even like near done. And because we love Scripture so much, we recognize that our views on creation are just different than our views on salvation. Do you see the difference there? They are not on the same plane. They're not. They hold a different weight. And what I found again and again is that many doctrinal arguments that happen as a result, uh, happen in the church, happen as a result of us inflating our beliefs to the wrong category. A preference begins to feel like a conviction because we feel very, very strongly about it. Conviction takes on eternal weight because it seems so central to what we believe. It seems so central to our personal theological formation. And so even though in reality we might be discussing a matter of conviction, the reason why we might be so upset is because we're acting like it's a matter of eternity. And pretty soon, a friendship is strained or a person leaves the church community upset. It happens all too often. And I can promise you this, we are going to disagree. You will disagree with each other, and that's okay. Because we are very, very different people. But in our disagreements, in our conversations, we have to reflect the unity of the gospel. You know, my wife and I could not be more different in the way that we approach God. I'm very linear and organized. I see, I see life in very simple terms. Sometimes it's a blessing, sometimes it's a curse. My wife is deep, deep water. And I used to think that she was just way more spiritual than me, which may very well be true. But it's not the whole story. Because you see, God in his infinite creativity did not manufacture us in a factory assembly line. Right? And so we're different. We're incredibly and wonderfully different. And that makes for some great conversations, some more animated than others. But you know, my wife and I have been married this year, it'll be 18 years. And you know, we don't agree on every aspect of our doctrinal convictions. We never have. In fact, fact, when we were dating, like when I was courting her at Denny's in Philadelphia (laughs) with a bullet hole through one window, it was a bad Denny's, we would be having doctrinal conversations like while we were dating, right? And it's worked out fine. And so even though we don't always agree, we are completely unified. There may be a tug of war, but we are running in the same direction. And so in the church, what we do is we take our vastly different personalities, 
We combine them with different sets of experiences. And then we come to a 2,000-year-old book written in a completely different culture to a completely different people group. And we try to grasp the Almighty God with our finite and sinful human minds. We are going to disagree. We are going to disagree. You know, <clears throat> we never really reach the end of knowing God. 1 Corinthians 8 says that if anyone imagines that he knows something, <clears throat> he, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. The God of the universe knows us, and he wants us to know him and continue to pursue knowing him. But he will not submit to being dissected and studied like an experiment in a lab. He's far more personal than that. And our approach to our beliefs must include the personal attributes of our God. Okay, so this is the situation that we find ourselves in as a community of faith, as has every church for our entire history, 2,000 plus years. We know that we're going to have disagreements. And so what do we do with that? Well, the scriptures have some really good guidance for us on this. The early church dealt with this quite a bit as Christians uh, who were Jewish came together with Christians who were Greek and they had differences of conviction and preferences on things like the day to worship and what food was appropriate to eat or not eat. And it got really confusing. And it's into that space that that the Apostle Paul enters, and we're going to look at Romans 14, and he's got some amazing teaching there on how to handle these differences in the church. Paul says in Romans 14, starting in verse 1, he says, he says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. By the way, that's not a slam on vegetarians. Okay, just make that clear. That's talking about like, uh, those that, um, that have religious convictions about meat, which would have been pretty common in the early church, uh, and they're called weak because their understanding of what is permitted under the gospel is still in development, okay? Verse 3 continues. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Skip down to verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. We're going to skip down again to verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul is helping people wrestle through the reality of differing convictions. He even says you have to be convinced in your own mind. 
Now, that's not like a license to just invent your own morality, right? It's not like, well, you know, I'm convinced that it's okay to whatever, engage in marital activities outside of marriage, right? Um, it's not like that. It's not like, hey, I'm convinced that getting wasted is totally cool. Nope, we've got verses for that one. We don't have to go down that road. See, in order to get there, you'd have to, you'd have to deny a matter of eternity that we looked at before in Second Timothy, which is that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. See, being convinced in your own mind is not a license to sin. No, this is, this is really talking about people who are wrestling with how to live in a way that honors God, but they come up to an issue that as they step into Scripture, Scripture either seems to give some leeway or doesn't say much of anything at all. And so he says to that person, be careful, right? Um, Just be careful. And he says to the people who are looking at them, be careful. And so we, we look at this, we look at this situation that Paul is dealing with, and he tells us not to despise that person who disagrees with you. He says, don't pass judgment on that person. He says that each one of us is going to have to give an account to God for ourselves. And so if Paul says that you are fully convinced in your own mind, well, then you need to honor that. You need to honor that space that God has put you into. Let me jump down to verse 20. Paul says, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now don't miss this. Paul is saying that it is entirely possible for two believers in Jesus to sit at the same table, be served the same meal, in this case a meal involving meat and wine. And for one person, they can eat that meat and drink that wine with a clear conscience. And for the person sitting right next to them, eating that same meal, they would actually be sinning by eating the very same food, drinking the very same wine. It says, he is condemned if he eats. That says something about the way that studied convictions work. And so we ought to be really careful with each other on these studied convictions and personal preferences. We ought to respect each other. And our actions ought to be guided by the fruit of the Spirit that God has instilled in you if you are a follower of Christ. That's something that we build into over the course of our life, right? We ought to reflect the fruit of the Spirit more and more as we go through our journey. What are those fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, we're going to disagree on really important things as Christ followers, but as Christ followers, we ought to respond in the Spirit. But how do we know if we are operating in the Spirit? How do we know if we're not disagreeing well? How do we know if we're inflating things into the wrong category? How do we know the difference between 
taking a righteous stand for truth versus engaging in a fruitless argument. Well, I want to offer just a few suggestions as we close out in a few minutes on keeping ourselves balanced within our beliefs. And we're going to do this kind of quickly. How do you know if you're getting out of balance? Well, one way is that you notice that, that all of your greatest obsessions come from your convictions. Like they're all from your convictions. For example, if you spend 95% of your time studying the end times and 5% of your time studying the rest of the Bible, you're off balance. I'm just going to make that clear. You're off balance. Now, some of you, I get it, like end times is like a hobby, right? Like, like some, some people are really into sports. Some people are really into the end times, right? I get it. You're just like up all night wondering about the four horsemen of the apocalypse and like you know, what are they going to look like and what are those winged creatures in Revelation? What the heck's going on there? And it's just really fascinating for you. It's, it's really more like a hobby, right? And that's cool. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not who I'm talking to. I'm talking to the person that gets so hung up on one debatable doctrine that it ends up eclipsing Jesus in your life. Do you see that? See what happens? Don't let your pet issues become matters of eternity just because you enjoy them. And make sure that you're balanced in your love of God's Word. All of it. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Not just those few passages that are really fun to study. What else? When you talk with people that you disagree with, if you find that you're listening solely for the purpose of replying, you're not actually trying to understand them, you're out of balance. You're off balance. You're not operating in the spirit. If you are generally operating out of anger when it comes to your convictions, like you're just angry about all of your views, I don't know, maybe you need a hug, but certainly you're off balance, right? <laughs> if you find that you want to call all of your matters of, your, of belief, you want to put them all into the category of matters of eternity, you are definitely off balance. Someone needs to help you edit that down. Likewise, if you want to put everything into the preferences category, like everything's fine, everyone gets to make it all up on their own, you're off balance. Scripture has more clarity than that. Give it credit. If your beliefs have very little Scripture tied to them, you are most definitely off. If you, if you just can't seem to find a church that you agree with, like in America, <laughs> you're off balance. If you're not growing in grace throughout your journey, you are probably off balance. Your grace for those whose convictions are different than yours, they should increase over time, not decrease. If not, you're off balance. Look, here's my heart in all of this. Someone asked me if this sermon was directed at a particular problem at Mosaic. Like, was I trying to deal with people who are causing issues? Nope. That's not it. This, this has actually been on the books for months. We moved it around a couple of times, but this is where it ended up landing. It's literally been on the books for like six months. No, this is preventative. This is preventative because I know that it is only a matter of time before you individually or we as a church 
will face an issue where there is a clear disagreement. And when we do, we need to have a good vocabulary to work with, to frame up the discussion. See, at some point, you're going to be having a conversation with a friend. Or maybe you're going to be in your missional community group, and a conversation's going to ensue about a passage of scripture or something else, and it's going to start to get a little heated, right? It's going to start to get a little animated. And, you know, the people that are like, you know, conflict-averse, they're going to like shrink back, and the people who love conflict are going to be like, yeah, let's do it, right? And, and what someone's going to need to do is just kind of like raise their hand a little bit and go, hey, um, just hold on one second. Um, th- this is fun. I, this is fun. I like this. This conversation's good. Um, can we just like for just one second just point out that the issue that we're discussing right now, it's not a matter of eternity. It's a matter of studied conviction or maybe a matter of preference. And so let's just, as we have this conversation, let's just keep it in that category. Okay, now go, right? <laughs> like that's just what we need to do for each other, right? We need, we need to do that for each other in the midst of it. Just kind of use this, use this vocabulary. Is this a matter of eternity? Nope. Okay. Is it a matter of studied conviction? Yes. Okay, great. Let's talk about it as though that's what it is, meaning we're going to have good verses for it. There's going to be some disagreement. We may not agree at the end of the day, and that's going to be okay. All right? Just frame up the conversation. Frame it up. And let's respect each other in the midst of that. Conversation's great. Disagreeing on non-eternal but super important matters is expected and actually really, really helpful. But let's respect each other in the midst of it, and let's live in unity while doing so. What does John 13 say about how we ought to be recognized as Christ followers by the world outside of here, right? It says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, for one another. We need to be able to disagree with each other in love. We often confuse unity with unanimity. In the church, unanimity would look like we all agree on every little thing. But unity just means that we are headed in the same direction. What does Philippians 2 say? So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You know, we are headed into a year unlike any other in our past as a church. We need unity more than ever. More than ever. We need to be of one mind more than ever. We can be like-minded even as we disagree over matters of conviction and matters of preferences. Just a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Renaud um, did kind of a vision sermon at the beginning of the year, and he really rallied us back to some things that we've been saying for a long time, that we are unified around demonstrating our passion for God and His passion for people, and that we can be unified together as we love God, love people, and serve the world. Those are the things we've said for 13 plus years. We can be unified around those things. And as we do that, expressing love for one another, living in the fruit of the Spirit, 
that sends a powerful message to those around us, that we can actually disagree on some non-eternal matters. That's a beautiful thing. So let's do that together. Let's be unified in the gospel that we all cling to so deeply. And if you don't cling to the gospel, if that's new for you, we want to talk to you about that today. We would love to help you understand what that means. I'm going to close in prayer. The band's going to come back up. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for freedom to have some great discussions. God, thank you for the differences between some of those things. God, I pray that we would have such deep respect for your word, such deep respect for how you've crafted your scriptures, that we would go to it, that we would study it, that we would love to study it, that we would love to discuss it with each other, that we would love to have great conversations, but that in the end, we would be fully rallied around the cross, fully rallied around the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that that would be, at the end of the day, the thing that marks us. We pray all these things in your name and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.